Hello and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm Bentley Kaplan, your host for this episode. And on this episode, we're going to get into two stories. First up, it's officially time for the UN Conference on Biological Diversity, or maybe unhelpfully branded as COP15, which is being hosted in Kunming, in China's Yunnan province. And although climate change has been the barnstorming environmental topic in the investment world for the last couple of years, biodiversity has been more of a marathon runner, and one that looks to be taking back some of the stage. We'll find out from Leslie Swingado just what is going down in Kunming this week and what it means for companies and their investors. And after that, we'll move on to the high-tech world of semiconductors or computer chips to use the vernacular. We'll get a timely reminder from Siping Gua of how an environmental challenge can bring even one of the most advanced technologies to a standstill. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. As I'm recording this and making edits into the wee hours of the morning, international delegates on the other side of the world in Kunming are burning the midnight oil too, possibly to achieve a more impactful end. And that's because it's time for the United Nations Biodiversity Conference. Think of parallels to the Paris Climate Accord in 2015, and you should have an idea of why this is such a big deal. And although climate has taken up a lot of the limelight, the biodiversity crisis has not just gone away. If anything, it has only been escalating. And for Leslie Swingdo, the timing of Kunming is not happening in a vacuum. She's a senior analyst in our ESG research team here at MSCI, based in Frankfurt, and one of our resident experts in biodiversity. In some ways, for her, this is long overdue. So for the past two to three years, the subject has really gone from being seen as a tree hugger topic to something that now everyone wants to talk about. Biodiversity is seen by many investors as the next big uh, ESG trend. And indeed, the World Economic Forum has evaluated that more than half of our global GDP is dependent on, on nature. The other thing that we're seeing from the investment community is also that they're starting to realize that climate change cannot be solved independently from, from nature. Biodiversity loss, uh, as we know, uh, is a major contributor to climate change. But in the same way, biodiversity conservation is also a very powerful tool to, to fight global warming. So there are a lot of expectations, as you can imagine, on COP15, because previously also a lot of the biodiversity targets agreed uh, through multinational treaties or at regional level have not been met. But many elements uh, can make us hopeful. If you look at the initial draft on, on the COP15, you can see that the targets that they drafted are more outcomes oriented, the time-bound and, and quantifiable. You have notably the flagship target to protect 30% of land, fresh water and oceans by 2030. But you also have more specific ones that address key drivers of species disappearance, such as halving nutrition loss, reducing pesticide use by two-thirds, and fully eliminating plastic waste discharges by 2030. So exactly what happens in Kunming this week and the second phase of the conference in May 2022 could be decisive for the future of biodiversity and, you know, everything it underpins. But COP15 is not the first flag in the ground. It's more like one step in a multi-pronged approach to tackle biodiversity loss. And working in a company that builds investment tools and provides research to asset owners and asset manager clients, Leslie has seen firsthand where some of these changes have been happening the fastest. I would say that this biodiversity momentum is particularly acute in Europe. Most of our 
clients' demands are coming from there when it comes to biodiversity, and particularly from three countries, France, the UK, and the Netherlands. And this is not at all surprising when you transpose this regional map to where the most stringent biodiversity regulations are emerging. The EU biodiversity strategy is probably um, the most ambitious uh, policy out there. And it's also in Europe that we are seeing uh, some of the first regulation incentivizing the financial institutions to reallocate capitals towards biodiversity efforts. Many other countries or regions in the world could follow suit, especially when you look at the success of the Leaders' Pledge for Nature, which has now been endorsed by more than 90 head of states. It's huge. Uh, they have all committed to reverse biodiversity loss by 2030, uh, which is also a, a very ambitious target. And I, I think the, the recent Nature Compact made by the G7 countries is also a really good illustration on, on how worldwide that momentum could become. So this was cut from a longer interview and Leslie did take me through some great detail on national and multinational treaties and laws that have addressed biodiversity, including Article 29 in France, which makes it compulsory for financial institutions to disclose their biodiversity-related risks, how they plan to reduce their impacts, and how that aligns with international laws or treaties, much like the one being thrashed out in Kunming. But all throughout our conversation, Leslie's taken a very measured turn. And that's because there is a lot at stake. This is not the first time that a multinational body has tried to do something about biodiversity. It's just that the past track record leaves much to be desired. But that doesn't mean there isn't room to hope. Because in many ways, whatever happens or doesn't happen at Kunming, the regulatory efforts elsewhere look to inevitably be moving the needle on biodiversity protection. And as that shift happens, the questions that investors might be asking is, Which companies or industries are going to fall into the firing line first? Who are the bad boys and girls of biodiversity? The scientific assessment is quite clear on that. They have clearly identified the food production system as being the main cause of biodiversity loss. If you look at agricultural activities, they are currently um, responsible for 80% of natural land conversions. Just to give you an idea, cattle ranching, soy and palm oil production alone are driving 60% of tropical deforestation. And this industry is also one of the hungriest for natural resources. It requires uh, more than 70% of the Earth's freshwater sources, and it overfishes uh, a third of all the fish stocks that are currently available. We also know that pollution and climate change are significant drivers of biodiversity loss. And well, here again, the food industry is not showing great performance. It emits over a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. It is a significant contributor of hair and water pollutants through its um, intensive use of pesticides and, and fertilizers. And it's also the largest users of plastic, which is the most abundant component of, of marine litter. So if this was some type of biodiversity end times poker game, food producers would have a royal flush. Plastic waste, pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, conversion of natural land, water consumption, you name it and food production does it. So the next logical question, and the one I put to Leslie was, okay, well if food producers are this impactful, then how ready are they for whatever regulatory bombardment is going to be coming their way, through any number of new biodiversity agreements or investment mandates? 
having as of today only a third of food uh, companies in the MSCI Acqui Investable Market Index had implemented programs with the agricultural suppliers to either reduce their carbon emissions or the use of fresh water and the chemical inputs that they use. Also, only a marginal fraction of food companies had committed to cut the use of virgin plastic within the packaging. Another thing to, to, to look at is the actual product portfolio of food companies. Not all food products are equals uh, in, in terms of biodiversity impact. And livestock is by far the most biodiversity intensive food item. And we also know that we consume way too much animal proteins for what our daily intake requires and also for, for what is recommended by health regulatory bodies. Yet, if you look at the industry, it has been quite slow to shift towards plant-based proteins and cultured meat that have a much lower biodiversity footprint than their uh, animal proteins counterparts. So as I said, this is an assessment at the industry level. You also have notable pro progress to, uh, to note and especially great steps that have been undertaken by a handful of food players. We've seen the level of comprehensiveness of greenhouse gas emissions reductions targets going up. Certain actors have also shown very interesting progress in terms of transparency, enhancing the traceability to the plantation and farm level, which is really key and fundamental for those companies to properly identify where the biodiversity hotspots are and plan then adequately the biodiversity protection and restoration measures that that specific local context requires. So for the food industry, it seems that the only way to go is up. And a bit like climate change, efforts to conserve biodiversity are not going to be achieved by the good intentions of companies alone. The challenge of better conserving biodiversity and the ecosystem services that weave through it is considerable. As Leslie pointed out, biodiversity is not something that happens out there, away from companies and away from the economy. Food production, ironically enough, depends on the very biodiversity that it is destroying. But unlike fossil fuels shifting into renewable energy, Food production is not something that can easily be pivoted away. So how quickly and how effectively these food producers improve their practices may come down to the actions of governments and investors. Governments may start taking a harder look at subsidies for food production and attaching more strings to them or revoking them altogether. And as investors look harder and harder at their portfolios, it might open up opportunities for engagement or better aligning with those companies that have taken their first steps to more sustainable practices. As our next story will show, environmental challenges are starting to blow back more often and in sometimes unexpected places. And one of those unexpected places is the world of semiconductors. Working from the basic property of being able to both conduct and insulate signals, semiconductors have become in many ways the interstitial tissue of our modern world. From the smart device or computer that you're listening to this episode on, the hardware powering the data center sitting behind our servers, to the fridge that your breakfast came from, or the way your COVID-19 vaccine is registered, or even the rice cooker that anchored your dinner last night, semiconductors or chips power them all. Which is why it's a real bummer when there's a global chip shortage. One that has been grinding on since mid-2020 and looks to have a healthy head of steam well into 2022. To find out just how much of a bummer it is, I asked Siping Gua out of MSCI's Beijing office to break down exactly how the supply-demand dynamic got so out of whack. 
on the demand side, uh, ventilators, remote healthcare, work at home, and virtual learning. The, the growth of these sectors are really driving the demand of um, chips um, right after the outbreak of the pandemic. And when the economy slowly recovered from the pandemic, the uh, demand of cars, home electronic appliances, um, industrial robotics, uh, telecommunication equipments really ramped up um, very fast. On the supply side, um, some of the countries or regions uh, where major chip production bases are located actually went into lockdown in early 2020. They may need to shut down their factories from time to time according to some local restrictions um, due to the pandemic. And these all very significantly interrupted um, the semiconductor supply. In general, the semiconductor industry is not very good at responding to these sudden kind of swings of demands because normally the production cycle of, of semiconductor may take a couple of months. And it also relies on seamless co collaborations across the value chain. It really is a nod to the success of semiconductors that demand increased both going into lockdown and coming out of it. And fair play to semiconductors, there were a bunch of other industries that got caught out by the global pandemic and couldn't turn the ship around quickly enough, or even just squeeze the ship through the Suez Canal. But it's worth looking a little deeper into how semiconductors are put together, because in there lies a flaw that may be exposed even well after the pandemic has ended. Now, I'm going to paraphrase from a recent paper that Ping authored to make things a bit easier. Semiconductor manufacturing is a pretty specialized game. They get made basically through two approaches. One is by companies that do it all, right from the initial chip design all the way through to assembling and testing. We can refer to these as integrated device manufacturers, or IDMs. And TBH, being an IDM is a hard ask. It's a lot of complex processes to run under one company's metaphorical roof. And the second way of making chips is to split up all these complex processes, to divide and conquer with each major step along the way being taken up by a separate company. At the very beginning are the chip designers that dream up some fancy plans. They then give these plans to contract manufacturers, which are basically separate foundry companies and outsourced assembly and test companies, or OSATs. And these companies are the ones that actually roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of making and testing these chips. The second approach to making chips is called the fabless foundry model. Fabless for the design companies that don't do any fabricating, and Foundry for all the actual assembly and testing that comes after the design. And although the Fabless Foundry model allows companies to focus on just one thing and get very good at what they do and maximize the overall capacity of the semiconductor value chain, it has had some unexpected side effects. From an ESG perspective, we can see that water consumption is actually outsourced from those fabulous chip makers to the contract manufacturers. And that leads to fabulous companies. They have really low level of water reliance, but at the same time, contract manufacturers, they may have a huge amount of water consumption and withdrawal. We also found that the kind of uh, specialization along the semiconductor value chain is often accompanied by geographic concentration. Taiwanese chip makers, they're really dominating in the foundry market and also the uh, 
specialized packaging and assembly uh, markets that lead to the most water-intensive processes, highly concentrated in one single uh, market, Taiwan. And Taiwan is known for its uh, water stress and also prone to drought. Um, so that leave very huge risks for the whole supply chain. Right. So while the semiconductor value chain was busy splitting itself up and specializing, what actually ended up happening was that a sizable chunk of the most water-intensive processes ended up in places where water was not plentiful. Take the foundry companies. Within MSCI's Acqui universe, 57% of all foundry operations were based in highly water-stressed regions. Which makes sense, because about 56% of all foundry assets were based in Taiwan which also accounted for 98% of revenue generated from foundry operations. And Taiwan gets a lot of rain. The problem is that a lot of Taiwan is complex mountainous terrain, so it's difficult to direct and store this rainfall, especially when a lot of it falls close together during the monsoon season. And Taiwan's chipmakers have done a pretty good job of adapting to this risk. In our water stress key issue, Siping found that Taiwanese chipmakers had the best risk management scores compared with chipmakers from other countries, particularly because of things like water recycling and monitoring and oversight of these efforts by company executives. But this may not be enough, because as chips get more sophisticated, so the need for water actually goes up. And ever the party pooper to water-dependent businesses, climate change is probably just going to make things more challenging and unpredictable. So for chip makers in Taiwan, we haven't seen any report of their production being affected by the droughts. But we do see like chip makers, they were forced to reduce water um, use by around 15% to 17%. But that ha hasn't really hit the balance sheet yet. But we want to raise one concern here that these kind of resilience during the droughts was coming at a cost of cutting off nearly 30% of the municipal water supplies in some of the densely populated cities in Taiwan. And it also resulted a stopping of irrigation of nearly one-fifth of the irrigated farmland in Taiwan. That reminds about social discontent from household farmers and small businesses. Seeing their water usage limited may turn out to be a risk for chip makers to operating sustainably in the future in Taiwan. So the semiconductor industry is doing its very best to drag us further into the modern world. Taiwanese foundry companies have squared off against water scarcity for some time. And there may be further innovation to come that sees these companies doing more with less. But as demand for chips, more sophisticated chips, goes up and water availability starts to drop, these foundry companies will start feeling the hard edges that lie underneath our economy. The bare bones that make much of our modern life possible. When you hear the phrase water wars, you're probably not immediately thinking of Taiwan's chip makers squaring off against its farmers and small businesses. But increasingly, we're seeing clear signs of how things like water are threaded through our complex supply chains and businesses, and that pulling on that thread can create massive and unexpected disruptions. And not too far from Taiwan, in Kunming, delegates are trying to tie together a new framework to better protect the natural resources and biodiversity that underpins all the other bits of our economy and, well, life on Earth. And unlike Taiwan's chipmakers, food producers 
have not really been pushed to make more with less. But that time might be fast running out, and failing to adapt and adapt quickly might find both food companies and their investors under increasing regulatory pressure. The days of dining and dashing look to be ending soon. And that is it for the week. A massive thanks to Leslie and Siping for their take on the news with an ESG twist. Siping has published a paper on her semiconductor research called Thirsty Chipmakers Face Taiwan's Worst Drought in Decades. It's currently only available to our clients, but there may be other more public versions of the research coming out further down the line. And as for Leslie, she'll be popping up all over the place to talk and write about biodiversity and the finance industry. So do keep an eye out for her. In the meantime, thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you're listening to us. All and any feedback is really great. It helps us to get better at what we do and to get you what you really want to hear. Thanks again. Stay safe out there. And we'll catch you again next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.